0: Hey, before we get going, uh, I'm your co-host, Aaron Lammer. I want to tell you about a podcast. It's actually a podcast I made. I've spent the last couple years working on this investigative miniseries about this guy, Gerald Cotton. He was the founder of the largest Bitcoin exchange in Canada. Until in December 2018, he died on his honeymoon trip in India. You might have heard about what happened next. No one could find his passwords. And as a result... Over $200 million worth of his customers' money was frozen. But here's the thing. Not everyone believes that Jerry is really dead. I'm not even sure what I believe. So I made this show to try to figure it out. It's called Exit Scam. You can subscribe right now. The first episode is out May 10th. That's this Monday. Again, it's Exit Scam in the podcast app of your choice or on the web at exitscam.show. I also want to tell you about our sponsor this week, Casefleet. You're going to hear more about them in the midroll, but I want to say that I actually used Casefleet while I was preparing Exit Scam. It was a great way to get all the PDFs and dates and facts all organized. If you have a project that needs that kind of revolutionary chronology organization and document review, you need Casefleet's software. You can sign up for a 14-day Free trial at casefleet.com slash longform and get ten percent off your first subscription. Okay, here's the show. Hello, welcome to the long form
1: podcast. I'm Max Linsgame here with my co hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff, gentlemen, hello.
0: Always a pleasure. Hi, Evan. Hey Aaron. Hey Max. Max, what is uh doing with the show this week?
1: What is doing with the show this week is that uh, one of my favorite people's on the show, Anna Sale, the host of Death, Sex, and Money. I talked to her for the first time on the podcast uh, a couple of years ago, several years ago now. We're so uh, we're so old. And uh, I talked to her about her podcast, Death, Sex, and Money, and the interview she does on that show and why she was doing that show. Um, I loved that conversation. And we kind of kept it going. She and I have have stayed in touch since then, talked a little bit about interviewing and podcasting and Uh, getting old and all kinds of stuff and this week Anna came out with a new book it's called let's talk about hard things it's about interviewing but really it's about how to have difficult conversations and the book is broken up into these different sections Uh, one is on death sex money of course but also identity and family and each chapter sort of weaves together all of these stories of people being able to have difficult conversations around those topics. Uh, and so I talked to her about the book and how you go from audio to writing. And also, uh, I asked her some hard things myself.
0: You love a hard conversation, Max. Yeah, it's like your bread and butter. <laughs> <laughs> I've put you both through through so many unwanted hard conversations. I did it to Evan just this morning, in fact. Um, this show is a, a bittersweet one. Max, perhaps you, you could t- tell us why.
1: Today is a bittersweet day because this is the last episode that Janelle Pfeiffer will edit. And uh, for those of you who listen to the show regularly, you have heard Janelle's name in the credits of every single episode for the last five years. I cannot overstate how critical Janelle is to A, this show getting out every week and to B, it's sounding coherent at all. If anyone who's listening to this ever listened to the raw versions of these interviews, there are some things that would be revealed. One of them, the three of us are kind of idiots. Uh, I'm like a a gigantic moron. That
0: may be impossible to cover up. I don't know.
1: Well, even, (laughs) even worse. Like all of us have our like tics and things we do. And Janelle comes in every week and just saves us from ourselves. And she also makes these conversations cogent and coherent The work that she puts in week after week after week is absolutely why the show has continued to come out and and why it makes sense. And I just, again, I cannot overstate how meaningful her contribution to this thing has been and uh, and how much we're going to miss her.
0: I'll just uh, chime in here and say that, uh, yeah, I think this show is probably more her product than our product. So if you've been enjoying the show, you've been enjoying... Uh, Janelle Pfeiffer's long form podcast. Um, I personally have very, very poor short term memory. And uh, every time I do an interview, she asks for notes and how it went. And I embarrassingly try to remember like two things that happened in the interview, which aren't even actually useful notes. And somehow, with absolutely no guidance, she makes all the decisions that I would make and many more better decisions that I would not make makes me sound smart, uh, in ways that I'm not. And and I really, really appreciate, uh, everything she's done for for me in the show. So we will really miss you, Janelle. Yes. Thank you, Janelle. And also don't you dare cut all this out.
1: (laughs) 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 I know that's going to be her. It's like, it's a very intimate thing. Uh, this relationship between the three of us and the person who edited this show. And, um, I do think that in some ways Janelle has like come to know us, uh, better than we know ourselves and the main thing that I can tell that people are listening about Janelle Pfeiffer is that she's just exceptional, exceptional at this job. And we've been really lucky to have her. We've got a new group of editors who are going to start next week. Uh, really excited about that. But uh, but man, Janelle, we've been, we've been lucky to
0: have you. So we're changing some things, but we're keeping some things the same. Like the fact that the show is only possible because of the support of MailChimp, who've been here for so many years, I don't even know how many years, more than five years, all the years. Thank you, MailChimp.
1: And now here's Max with Anna Sale. Well, hi Anna. Hi Max. Thanks for um thanks for coming back on the show.
2: Thanks for having me. So glad to be here.
1: I have a confession for you, which is that um I don't even know when you were on the show. I haven't gone back and listened to it. I should have. I know that I should have before we talked, but I didn't because I feel some shame about that interview because my recollection is that we talked and then um, I asked you to come back again because I thought I had fucked it up.
2: No. Well, my recollection is that somehow the first time we talked, I spent the first 45 to 50 minutes talking about West Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) And then somehow you being like, hmm, this isn't quite what I was
1: looking for. (laughs) You think? I don't know. So I, we
2: did it again.
1: Well, it makes I guess maybe it makes some sense that you think it's your fault and I think it was my fault, but I am unswayed. I still think it's my fault. And I guess my recollection is that yeah, the second time we talked, we talked about harder things.
2: Mm-hmm. I remember that.
1: And that seems fitting because now you've written a whole book about how you do that.
2: Well, my I actually have a memory. I don't always listen back to these things, but I did listen to the episode when it came out. And I can picture being in my Brooklyn apartment when you asked about starting the show when I was out of the out of the shambles of my first marriage. Yeah. It, was like, it was something like you talk to a lot of people who've been through divorce. You've been through a divorce. And I can remember there's like a tightness that shows up in my I'm like, mm-hmm. And like I, I like wasn't ready to talk about it, but we talked about it and I I think it was really a, an interesting audio moment. It, it makes me feel like, oh, little Anna was still <laughs> not sure what her personal narrative was. <laughs> She's very freaked.
1: <laughs> well, I'm I'm happy for you that you figured it out because I'm just going to do that again. I'm just going to very awkwardly ask you something today. I've I have not uh, I've not grown at all as a person. Meanwhile, that's like this like way in your rear view.
2: Oh, I don't know. I have all all kinds of new baggage that you don't know about.
1: Let's start there. What's all your new baggage?
2: My new baggage is um, I'm 40. I just turned 40 in 2020. So I feel like that's really interesting, unfamiliar territory, midlife. And new baggage is also I'm a parent. I don't think I was a parent before.
1: Yeah. I, both of those things sound very familiar. I just turned 40 <laughs> like a couple weeks ago. And uh, happy birthday. How does 40 feel to you? Does it feel really different?
2: <sighs> yeah, it does. To me, it's like, the rhythm of life feels different than it did – I just picture my, like, late 20s and early 30s as this, like, hungry, open mouth that wanted to, like, eat everything and try everything and build everything and just, like, explore. And, and out of this real panic that if I didn't do that, I wasn't going to figure out where I was supposed to be and what I was supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And I don't have that angst anymore. It's a different kind of angst, which is just, like – Yeah, how to live life when it's not all about hustling and building, but instead like focusing and maybe making choices about how you spend your time.
1: How much of that do you think is connected to having checked some real boxes in your professional life? Like you've now been hosting this show for seven years, almost seven years.
2: Yeah, seven years in May. Yep.
1: You're putting a book out into the world. Like... How much do you think that that feeling like um, those pressures aren't there, that angst isn't there as much is about having achieved that stuff or just like getting to this point in your life? Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah. No, I think um, I feel so grateful and glad that, you know, I feel like the first part of my career was like, what am I supposed to be doing and like searching around and then figuring out Oh, I'm supposed to be interviewing and kind of figuring out how to like pull stuff out of people and make audio about it and so I knew that and then and then the next crisis was like now I know what I really want to do and am I going to get to do it in the way that I want? And getting to make a show and start a show and build a team and build a team culture and build a listening community like oh, it's so great and i don't feel that fear anymore like i'm i'm doing it i'm doing the thing that i'm supposed to be doing like what so great but now it's things like what is my what's fueling my ambition now is it really like do i want my name in like bigger and bigger lights how much is this is ego stuff like because there's still a big part of me that like somebody emails me with an exciting opportunity and i'm like hell yeah yes yeah. <laughs> you know? and then i have to be like wait whoa hang on how much travel is that going to take and like well, is it pay the right amount am i going to get to like put a new bathroom floor in or not like uh, uh you know those kinds of like midlife boring logistical concerns like it's just like am i living the values that i say i'm living or am i am i just feeding this like bottomless pit of ambition ego that, that's like sort of the question I'm in with like the next phase of my career.
1: Do you know what you need to be content in the ambition <laughs> ego department? Have you figured that out?
2: Well, no. I think though the question I'm trying to ask myself when it comes to work is like, you know, I, I quickly have a sort of like, ooh, that's interesting. I want to do this thing. But then a new question that it feels more urgent to me is like, wait, What is that work in service of, right? So it could be that it's, oh, this work is in service of like building the capacity of the audio makers around me. And that feels really good to be like moving into this teacher role. Or it could be this is in service of elevating this issue that I think is really important. And I want to do this collaboration because it's going to do that. But sometimes I'll get excited about something and it'll be like, is this just because you want more attention, Anna?
1: Right. Like, is, is, this just, <laughs> is this just in service of, like, Anna Sale Industries?
2: Yeah. You know, and I think that right now I'm like, that's, like, not the person I want to be growing into. Mm. I want to be able to answer, I'm doing this for some other intentional reason than attention.
1: And you feel like you've got the space right now to be that intentional?
2: I don't know. Who knows? I think I'm. you're catching me like at the end of a really long-term project working on this book alongside working on a show. And that was a lot. So yeah. I think that you're catching me at just like this moment of like, okay, Anna, okay, just take a breath. It's like a little, little <laughs>
1: bit of like a reset moment. Yeah. Can we talk about your book for a second? Sure. My vision of this is that you like – just wrote the whole thing very industriously during the pandemic while also making a podcast and (laughs) taking care of your two young children and you did it all in some sort of magic way. Is that uh, that right?
2: That's 100% wrong. (laughs) Like I started this book, I worked on the proposal. I think I started maybe at the very tail end of 2016 and then had a proposal by like maybe like late winter 2017 and then sold the book in. May of 2017. So it has been a four-year process.
1: Did agents come to you or did you go to agents?
2: Oh, as soon as Death, Sex, and Money was a thing that anyone had listened to, book agents were like, hey, do you have a book idea? Which is like a really heady thing. Like, no, but maybe. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so then, so I, I sort of like tossed that around for a long time. Like, it would be fun to write a book. And then it would be like, wait, Anna, like a book has to be an idea that you're really excited about because it's a lot, a lot of work. But, a, a, you know, a lot of the people who reached out would say like, do you want to do a, a Death, Sex and Money book where, you know, we could just transcribe interviews and put your face on the front and people will buy it. And I didn't want to do that. If I was going to write, I wanted to write something that was written to be read and not something that was better if you listened to it. And And I think what kind of eventually sort of like the sort of question I had for myself was like, people would say like, how do you do this? How do you get people to open up? And how do you have these hard conversations on your show? And I would sort of like improv my answer to that in interviews. And then I was like, well, wait, what if I like tried to articulate something about what I've learned and put words to whatever intuition I have about it, and then read about what other people have said about hard conversations and then talk to other people and move it out of the realm. At first, I thought I was going to write a book like for journalism students about the art of interviewing. That was an idea at one point. And then I was like, oh, it's much more interesting to sort of admit that the conversations I have in a podcast setting, like they're hard, but whoa, it's a lot harder when you're talking in your personal life with someone where there's stakes on both sides and it's a relationship that's going to continue or not at the end of a hard conversation. So that's sort of what led to the book.
1: And once you settled on that idea, you've just been working on it steadily for a couple of years? Like how how did you balance writing a book and hosting the show?
2: Um, Balance is not the correct verb. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: How did did you let those two things tear you apart?
2: (laughs) I worked in a lot of different ways. I mean, I, At first, I was like, I'm going to not work on Fridays on the show, and I'm going to use that for reporting and writing, and I'm going to just kind of tackle these big chapters. There's a death chapter, sex chapter, money section, um, family and identity, just tackle these chapters one at a time and get these really rough drafts. And so I would use Fridays as reporting time and reading time and writing, and I took like three months per chapter or thereabouts for each big draft, and that was about the first year of working on the book. And then I had a baby, <laughs> another baby, which uh, sort of slow. I had to do that first email that was like, "Ah, oh, the book's not going to be ready when it says it's going to be ready in that contract. Um, I'm still working on it. But then I worked on it. I had I have wonderful maternity leave, parental leave at New York Public Radio. It's a really good reason to work for New York Public Radio, the parental leave. I had six months paid So I was able to be with my baby and also work on the book when she was napping. And that was like really my first carved out time to work on the book. And then I would take, I took two weeks of vacation here, three weeks of vacation there. Mm -hmm. And then somehow, finally, I was doing, somehow, finally, I was doing final edits during the pandemic. Um, But I had a rough draft pre-pandemic, like rough, rough draft. Mm -hmm. And then this last year has just been like figuring out how to make it really click together.
1: We should tell people quickly just how it's structured. So there's like five chapters, death, sex, money, family, identity, and each one starts with a kind of short essay-ish sort of thing about yourself and your relationship to whatever that topic is. And then it moves into like a pretty like reported analysis of that thing and trying to pull in a whole bunch of different experiences to that idea of talking through whatever it might be. Which can be difficult. So that that's the like structure of the book.
2: Yeah, and I think like one of the subplots of the book is like Anna starts the book being like, I thought I could just like, study my way through hard things and fix things that were hard, and when that didn't work with couples counseling and self help books and trying to figure out how to stop a marriage from sort of falling apart, it's sort of a process of like coming to know that like, oh, there's not like a skillfulness that's going to problem solve hard things for you in life and in particular in conversation. But what hard conversations can do is like, you can sort of like witness what's hard. You can be with what's hard, admit what's hard. Like when you're talking about money with a friend who has a different amount of money than you, if you just say, we're coming at this from different places, like instead of being like, uh," you know, (laughs) like not admitting to like, then you can sort of just like, you're admitting the hard thing and that that can be its own relief that you're not trying to like talk your way around it and that some hard conversations you know they are successful when they end in a place that's like oh we're not going to agree on this this conversation has run its course and so that's sort of the subplot of my life that's underlying the book
0: (laughs) Hey, uh, this is your co host, Aaron. I'm going to pause things here briefly to tell you about our sponsor this week, Casefleet, who hooked me up with their software. I happened to be working on a project that it was perfect for. I had lots of documents stuck in my email that had all kinds of facts I needed for this project I was working on. I uploaded them to Casefleet, and it does this auto-recognize thing where it extracts text and dates. So instantly, you can start putting things on a chronological timeline. It has built-in text recognition and full-text search. So no longer was I hunting for documents. In fact, I was able to search within those documents. And probably the part I found the most impressive was how well it recognized different Ways to write out a date from different documents. Uh, I've never seen uh, this kind of fuzzy search work so well. I think Casefleet would be great for a lawyer, but also great for someone uh, writing nonfiction, making a podcast, doing something uh, deep in the archives with history. It really can work for a variety of applications, and if you're intrigued, you can do a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com slash longform. You will get 10% off your first subscription. Thanks, Casefleet. Here's the show.
1: And what was the writing process like for you? I mean, I think people who listen to death sex and money might underestimate how much like writing it goes into that show but what was it like for you going from audio to writing a whole fucking book
2: <laughs> um it was interesting at the things that i was really comfortable writing and the things i really had to be like kind of coached through and like given pep talks I found the memoir stuff. There's lots of memoir pieces of the book, and that that was fun to write. That's, like, stuff I'd done. You know, I'd done personal essay stuff before, so I could get into that. And then the um, finding the characters to talk to for each, the, the reported people. I basically was like, who's gone through some real moments of crisis around this particular topic, and I want to know, like, what were the helpful conversations? What were the harmful conversations? Like, what would you tell a friend about how we ought to talk about this? And that was like a muscle that I've been building with Desk, Sex, and Money. It's like casting people, finding the interesting stories. But I would write up those interviews, you know, and sort of write it in a writerly way. And then I would just like, end each section, the person like, and so that's the end of that person's story. Like, just like I, (laughs) like the podcast episode ends, you know? And my editor really had to coach me into like, Anna, tell the reader what they just read and why it's important. (laughs) (laughs) And I would be like, uh, you know, it's, it's too much. I don't want to put a bow on it. And he's like, no, no, just like, just, it's okay. It's okay to say like, so thus, here's the concluding, paragraph or two to this section. Mm-hmm. And I think that was just me not being comfortable in a sort of like
1: expert y role, you know? Yeah. Why why weren't you comfortable in that role?
2: I think it's because that was what was different. Like in the show, I'm I'm so my way of reporting is like, ooh, let me understand that. And I hear you saying that and that seems intention with that. Like let's talk about that. It's like pulling out the things. And then I like that the listener is like, oh, I hear that. I hear what she did there, but I'm not going to say, did you hear what I did there? <laughs> you know, right, right, right. Um, but I think with writing, and in particular a book where you're saying there's going to be a usefulness for this book in your life, you're going to learn how to do this. I did need to like step up and say, like, so you know, when this person said this thing about what was going on in their family and it unfolded this way, like, here's a way that this can be broadly applied.
1: What did you want to? encourage or inspire people to do if anything like like is there some call to arms in the book
2: oh i think there's a call to arms in it i mean i think what i i wanted to say this is not a book that you're going to pull off the shelf and be like oh here's the script for the sympathy card that i have been putting off writing because i don't know what to say and i think that those books can be really useful. But this is a book that it does give you sort of short sentences for like what people have, what has like crystallized a moment of like when they talked about something that needed to be addressed in a relationship. And I hope more than feeling like you can go to it for a script, you feel like, here are these other people who have done this. And so I can lean towards these kinds of conversations where I feel myself afraid I'm going to lose the thread or a little bit on shaky ground. And that the reason you do that is because that vulnerability, that openness and that curiosity of what you are what you might hear from somebody else by being like, I know we've never talked about this, but I, I want to know, you know, how are you feeling about being 80 years old? You know, like when you have those kinds of conversations, that something really important is created. And it's something that like, reinforces our relationships to one another. It's an important practice. And so less of a sort of like script. I wanted this to be a like, this is why it's worth trying.
1: Do you feel like an expert now?
2: I feel like I am an expert in trying and like the ways to create the conditions for when you can, when when is the best time to wade into these kinds of conversations. Like, I I think a lot about what do I need to communicate to this person so they understand, like, why I'm coming at them with either these questions or this thing I need to say. Like, how do I create the conditions for them to be the most primed to be able to hear something or answer something that's going to feel a little bit uncomfortable? Like, I think it's really important when you are trying to move into a different mode of communication outside of sort of everyday pitter-patter chit-chat, like to say like, hey, I need to talk to you about something, or, you know, something's been on my mind, is now a good time to talk. Just kind of creating the conditions where the person who you are bringing that up to is like, okay. And then kind of choosing how to create those first couple of questions you have or that thing you need to say, and like bringing a spirit of curiosity rather than judgment in that that initial phase can be transformative in in what kind of conversation will follow.
1: Is that something you've always been good at?
2: I think I've had a lot of really good practice thanks to being from a family of, I'm one of five daughters. There's a lot of talking about feelings. (laughs) Um, I've always been very like, my personality is one in which I wanna sort of like dig in, you know? Yeah. And then like being a news reporter, like where you are training to like, how do I get the person to say the thing in 20 seconds? Like how to have that sort of like, what's going on in your life? Like what are you, you know, how are you feeling? Are you feeling worried, are you feeling excited? You know, just like the really fast imperative of establishing rapport, like that is something that news reporting taught me. So I've had it coming from a lot of directions.
1: I understand the context in which you do that journalistically and I think part of what I'm curious about is like are you just like like that in your life? Like are you going for it with people who maybe have not totally advertised that they are comfortable <laughs> going for it? You know what I mean? Like is there is there some element to you where like you might not know someone super well and you're kind of like I'm going to ask you a very uh, personal question here. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, is that kind of your, your vibe or or now?
2: Is that who I am at the dinner party? I think sometimes I'm that person at the dinner party. I mean, the thing that my husband, Arthur, will often, whenever we are with other people at like a mealtime, which is complicated when you have little kids, like, you know, all the needs that are happening and circulating all the time. Like, he will say, like, when you click into a conversation with someone you just stop paying attention to, like, who needs their wine glass refilled, like, what the kids are doing, like, yeah. your daughter's, like, in your ear. And I just, like, zzz, you know, I'm, like, locked in. So it's not so much that I'm asking, you know, oh, my God, when did you lose your first job? What was that like being laid off at, like, a dinner table um, first thing? But I do, like, really enjoy, like, the one-on-one conversation and, like, digging in.
1: Well, that I mean, that... One of the things that I was interested in reading the book was how to get a feel for when it's the right moment or okay, not just like the best conditions, but when you're not imposing that conversation on someone who maybe doesn't totally want to have it, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I think that's one of the challenges with these kinds of conversations is that even people, you know, well, like long time friends, sometimes people just don't, want to go there and yeah I don't know I find that hard to sort of um, get a feel for sometimes
2: yeah or you feel it and then
1: you're like oh oh yeah no, I that, just, I'm, I... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very aware when I've done it <laughs> I'm looking for some sort of warning signal that could be sent up that's like this person doesn't want to fucking talk about us
2: yeah. I mean, I have certainly like messed up that line before. And I I think that it's that like when I'm talking to someone, whether in my personal life or with work, it's like I'm listening for a lot of cues about like where I'm getting too hot or too close, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that there's an important like ethical as a journalist, like you got to pay attention to those because, you know, if you're talking to people about traumatic things like... I always try to sort of pause there and sort of say, like, how do you want to talk about this like, or not talk about this? Draw the lines for me. Help me understand how you want to talk about this. But I do think more often than not, when you come to someone with real, like, how did you do that or what was that like? Like a real curiosity. And so it's like this invitation to, like, tell me what you are learning or have learned people really like to talk and share and especially when they notice that you're listening because that is not an everyday occurrence you know like i i have this memory i was just talking to a friend about it like i i spend time in wyoming every year my husband does field work in wyoming and we were there for a lot of the pandemic where the joke was six feet isn't that a little close (laughs) (laughs) and like you know There aren't a lot of like outward feelers in Wyoming, you know, it's like the the corner of Wyoming I'm in. And like I can remember like I was on a like out in the woods with a friend who was, you know, born and raised in northwest Wyoming and like talking to him about like the births of his children. You know, we were just talking about becoming parents and the emotion that he shared and the like feeling that he shared, you know, it's just like. It just had to be done in the, the right way, you know, that those conversations can happen with people who aren't the people you think who are totally feelings
1: forward. Does it ever, does it ever get heavy for you? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, to me, what I notice is if I'm talking to someone about something that happened to them that they've had time to sort of reflect on and absorb, And now have something they want to sort of like testify to, like, I have been through this, you know, that those, even when it's really challenging stuff, like interviewing my, one of my best friends from growing up, Leslie, about like what it was like to go through the delivery of a stillborn baby, like talking to her about that, as sad as that is for us to do, it also feels, it's not in the moment, the crisis is not happening right now that was mm-hmm. years ago and so now it feels like a story that she wants to share as just like this happened to me when i do feel the heaviness it's when i'm talking to someone who is right in it like right in the feeling of all of the heaviness and doesn't know how they're going to be able to lay any of it down and that that can be really hard traumatic things are also just like when you have a conversation, when you want to offer, like you wanna be able to say that thing that's gonna lift some of that. And instead what you have to say is, oh, I'm so sorry, you're carrying all that. Thank you for talking to me about it. Those are the conversations where I like, I have to go for a walk after and just like, yeah.
1: Yeah. Do you think that having hard conversations gets easier? like? Can hard conversations stop being hard at some point?
2: I think you can get used to the feeling of feeling out of control, and that makes them less scary. I think white people know this feeling. Like the first time you really tried to talk about being a white person to someone in your life who is not a white person, like that's a scary conversation to have the first time. And then to keep pushing yourself to have it. And then you finally like you might get to the point with that particular friend or in your life like we're making jokes about you're being a white person. is like something that's incorporated. So you're just like here's the ways that I'm in. I'm going to make some mistakes, you know, Um, like I think that that's you kind of get more comfortable in the space of like descriptive real time language instead of like here's what I know, you know.
1: Like there's some muscle memory, like you just you've jumped out of this plane before.
2: Yeah, and like learned humility, and you know, it learned humility, and also the practice of like trying and maybe messing up and trying again. But you, then you like, even though that feels uncomfortable, you see that there's something that is happens as a result of you just keep keeping trying. Right, you know, that's important.
1: Right. And does. Anything about your curiosity or interest or energy or, like, desire for those conversations, does any of that dissipate once they don't feel as scary?
2: Um, I don't think it's, like, the scariness that attracts me to it. I think, like, there was a different kind of urgency... To at least hard conversations in my work. When the show started, the urgency was: I don't know how to build my life. And I need, I need someone to give me some models. And now I have like a lot of these incredible, amazing building blocks that I'm really proud of and love of my, you know, my marriage and my kids and and my work. And so it's not so much like, oh, my God, tell me something, (laughs) you know? Like now it's more like let's compare notes. What's it been like for you? Mm -hmm. So now it's just sort of like, oh, I just want to know more and more variations on this and like studying that.
1: It's connected to that idea of being an expert too. Like the energy of death, sex, and money at the beginning was –
2: Desperate.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's the word I was good. That's the word I was avoiding saying.
2: It's okay. It's
1: okay. Like you were, you fucking wanted to figure some stuff out. You know, and my sense reading the book, it was hard for me not to read it and and be like, oh man, she figured some shit out. (laughs) You know, like. There's like an element in which the book is a little bit like of of, uh, tying the bow on in the way that you're talking about at the end of these passages. And I think the question I'm trying to ask is like, once you're an expert and you're writing a book that's like, this is how you do this, like, then what do you do?
2: Okay, I actually have an answer to this. Because I think it's, i thought about this a lot. I mean, the first three years of the show... The show started in 2014. I got married in 2015. I had my first child in 2016. I had my second child in 2018. Like it, and I moved to California in 2016. It was just like, ugh, like yeah. stuff was up in the air, and stuff is not so much up in the air now. And I say that with the big caveat of like, who even knows what could be around the corner? But I think what I'm interested in now is it's sort of a larger mission where it's less about help Anna Sale figure out her own personal life so she's not as freaked out. And it's more like we have this enormous question of like how we are supposed to live together in America right now. And like, where is it that we hold firm to our principles and speak truth to power? And where is it that we listen? And I don't have the answer on where that line is, but that is something that like, every institution in America is grappling with right now, every family is grappling with right now, every like, how do we live together? And I think the show in its way, I think has this, and the book, I hope, kind of gives this, it's like a guide for how to like, try to do that at the most micro level, like in the conversations you're having with the people in your life that you love, with the people in your life that you work with, like, how do we do this together? And that takes getting more comfortable with just like, here's where I disagree with you, but here's where I know we've got to like, work on something together, because there's a larger project. So I, I think of the, I don't know if it's desperation, but I certainly feel like the health of our society right now is not one that i feel great about launching my kids into like i want to try to be a part of like helping them learn how to be in this world with humility and also grounded in values and i think that comes from learning how to talk to people.
1: Hmm. What a 40 year old.
0: <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> <sighs>
1: Well, part of what I hear you saying is like, it is actually still a kind of desperation. It's just that in 2014, it was like pretty internal and now maybe it's more external.
2: Yeah, that's how I think about it. And with that comes the like, oh, if it's not my own personal questions driving the conversation like then what are listeners telling us they need to hear from what are producers saying they want to talk about like it's mm-hmm. it's a cool thing of just like opening up like what does anna not know how to talk about because she is a 40 year old <laughs> you know like what is she just like she's got to get with it on some of this other stuff like what do i have to keep learning about um so that's a cool like process of like widening the mission and it's interesting because I think we have this sort of like, how do we engage with the world and America right now, sort of thing. And then also, people still really need to know, like, I need to know how to date. Like, do an episode about dating and pandemic. <laughs> right, like, there's right, still right, right. those things. If you're in it, is no less urgent. So we're we're kind of trying to do what we've done and also do this this broader stuff.
1: Can I ask you a question? I I am.
2: Uh oh. Well. <laughs> is this a-
1: no, this isn't this isn't like I'm not gonna ask you about your divorce.
2: <laughs> no, no, you, I just wonder I feel like you do a sneak attack um with hard questions towards the end of interviews. So I'm curious what this is. Let's
1: let's see. This is a very open ended question. Okay. I feel like I've listened to you for hours and hours and I just read this book. Like I feel like I know you pretty well. We never really like hung out, but I feel like I I feel like I know you pretty well.
2: One time. One time we did. We had drinks.
1: Yeah. I just feel like I know you pretty well, you know? But then, I this is the experience I had when I put down the book. So I was like, all right. I put a bunch of language to a bunch of shit that I think about a lot. And there's a lot in here about Anna. And I have no idea what's not in here about Anna.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I have no idea in the show, like, what you're holding back. And I wonder if you think you'd be able to articulate like what the gap is between Anna Sale, host of the podcast, Death, Sex and Money, and the person that the people who know you best know.
0: Hmm.
2: I mean, I think my persona is my best self. I'll just say that. Like I think the people who know me up close know a lot of the more of the ways that I disappoint them, <laughs> that I'm disappointing. Um, I wish I could be the kind of like present listener and friend that I am on the show to to people I love in my life like more like part of that is just like being busy with two little kids and work and stuff. But like I know what that can be Um, Mm -hmm. and I wish I did that more.
1: Do you think the people around you like listen to the show and are like I don't talk to fucking Anna like that. I haven't <laughs> talked to her for two weeks.
2: I mean, I'm sure. I Like, I know that there are people in my life who've been like, oh, Anna puts herself up as this person who has hard conversations in these really patient, open ways. But like, you know, for people I love and have really big feelings with, like I picture when I fight with my husband and we, when we have conflict, like we argue, like we fight and we have gotten really... um like, I know the pattern because we've done it a lot in the last year of the <laughs> pandemic. You know, I'm very aware. And, you know, um, like, I am can be really reactive and protective of my own narrative of things and defensive in a way that's, like, embarrassing to me after the fact. Like, I'm not always, like, a great patient listener, you know. But I, what I've tried to do, and I think hopefully the book is helping me a little bit more, is, like, even when my brain is telling me to, like, dig in and, and not try to win this argument. Like I'm trying to get a little bit more familiar with like what that feels like in my body when I get that hot and angry mm-hmm. and like realize, oh, this is what you feel like when you're not acting in the way that you really want to be acting. Um, yeah. Does that make sense?
1: No, that totally makes sense. I think, I think I'm just maybe asking about something slightly different, which is like you said earlier that you found writing the personal stuff in the book really fun Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and the personal stuff in the book is like your marriage falling apart and like (laughs) your sex life was a
2: weird word choice
1: (laughs) well yeah a little bit kind of like maybe a tiny bit like it's like uh, that essay about our sex life when we were trying to conceive what a good time it was to write that Is like not, is a surprising description, I would say. And I think that's what I'm actually trying to figure out is like, if that's not like hard or scary or unpleasant to put out in the world in some way, I'm not even asking for specifics. I guess I'm asking about like how comfortable you have gotten with putting that stuff out to the point that you're like, that was really fun. Um, (laughs) Like, what do you hold back for yourself? You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. I mean, maybe fun is the wrong word. I find it sort of interesting. I found it interesting and challenging. And also, like, it was sort of like to have the space that it was an assignment that I had to, like, sit down and be like, what have you been through, Anna? Like, this has been. So I don't think... You know, I was talking about painful things and sad things and not just my divorce, but also like being so freaked out about like committing to Arthur, like the back and forth we had when we were figuring out if we were going to be together, like and thinking about, oh, that there are a lot of ways that was hurtful to him, like me not being able to decide like that doesn't feel good (laughs) to read back even like it wasn't it doesn't feel good, you know, but I I don't know what it is. Maybe it's that like writing. I kind of forgot that people are gonna read this, so that was part of it. Was like, oh, what have I been through? And then, and now, like, oh my God, Max, you're making me realize, like, fuck, people are reading. (laughs) Oh yeah, it's in a book. Um, But then I tell myself, you know what? Like, it's like in service of something I believe in, which is like modeling how messy it can be while you're figuring it out.
1: Yeah, I think maybe the question I've been circling around, which is probably impossible to answer is basically like you've made this whole like field of work for yourself about th- things that are hard. Talking about things that are hard, writing about things that are hard, saying things that are hard, sitting with things that are hard. And the thing that I don't know you well enough to know is whether that's hard for you. Or maybe doing things that are hard for other people, you're actually kind of good with.
2: Yeah. I mean, I hear what you're saying, which is like, Anna, you've organized your life around all these things that cause stress in life and make it not easy. And it, like... <laughs> What what do you get out of that? Um,
1: well, it's like it's like. Um, do you watch that documentary about the guy who like f- free climbed the crazy cliff?
2: Yeah, what's it called? Free solo.
1: Yeah, and they did the like study on his brain. And he just doesn't. He like he's just missing the part <laughs> where he gets scared.
2: You know what? I have wondered. I don't think I am missing a scared part of my brain.
1: No, I mean the the part that th- that really feels the thing is hard, <laughs> is maybe what I'm wondering.
2: I'm I'm glad you're asking this because I have wondered like, is there some way my brain is different? I'm I'll do a brain scan. I'm interested. Like what is what what is that part? Um I don't know, but I I do I have paused while writing this book and while doing the show to go like am I part alien? Like why do I feel slightly less repelled than the average person of just trying to have these conversations and why is that? And I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think the thing that it makes me think about uh this is like kind of cheesy, but I do feel like I think about the family I grew up in and the like deep security and confidence that I came out of that family with. And so somehow, I don't know. I I, I thought about, yeah, nature, nurture, I don't know.
1: I think the family thing is is right because there's this moment in the family section of the book where you describe calling your folks like minutes after your marriage ended. And they're just everything you would ever want parents to be in that moment, you know? They're just like, we're here for you, it's okay. Part of what I hear you saying is like, you grew up knowing that it was gonna be okay, you know? And I think that that's part of what having hard conversations about is also like knowing that on the other side, It's not going to be all okay, but like it's going to exist. You're going to be alive, you know, Mm -hmm. and you like Mm -hmm. you do that enough times, get through something hard and still like have to put your shoes on in the morning and it feels a little less daunting, you know?
2: Well, that makes me just want to shout out June and Bill Sale. Thank you. That's, that's a nice thing for a daughter to be able to play their parents when their daughter is grown for them to hear on a podcast. So that's meaningful.
1: Uh, well, the work you're doing is very, very meaningful and the book's real good. Congratulations.
2: Oh, man. You are a really gifted interviewer.
1: Oh, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Thanks for doing it.
2: Thank you, Max.
1: Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor for the last time is Janelle Pfeiffer. Janelle, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Our intern is Susan Peterson. Our sponsor, as always, is MailChimp. Thanks to them. Thanks to Case Fleet, who also sponsored this week's episode. And thanks so much to Anna Sale for, uh, for taking some time and um, sticking with me through that one. Her book is called Let's Talk About Hard Things. Clearly, she is very, very good at that. We'll see you next week.